For those of us that are remaining in our main service this morning, we are continuing in our series um, in Amos, and Jeremy is going to be unpacking Amos 6 for us shortly. But uh, before he does, and we, before we sing, Debbie's going to come and read uh, from Amos for us. Thanks, Debbie. Amos 6 can be found on page 921 of the Church Bibles. It's headed, Woe to the Complacent. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kalna and look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath, and then go down to Gath in Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds inlaid with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The Sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten men are left in one house, they too will die. And if a relative who is to burn the bodies comes to carry them out of the house and asks anyone still hiding there, is anyone with you? And he says, no. Then he will say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command and he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plough there with oxen? But you've turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodibar and say, Did we not take Carnaim by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, O house of Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Nebo Hamath to the valley of the Arabah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Do please be seated. May I add my welcome to you all this morning, whether you're gathered here in church with us or whether you're listening online. The translator code there, if anybody needs it, uh, is available. I'll start with a little quiz. What links this church... Me, (laughs) and the message of Amos 6. 
Any guesses? Well, I'll put you out of your misery. The church, that's Stockton Parish Church in the northeast of England, sitting as it does at the head of the very broad high street, so characteristic of many towns in that part of the country. The connection with me is that, that is that's where nearly 40 years ago I started to train as a reader. Alas, I was actually only to serve there as a reader for about a week because I was licensed in the cathedral in Durham on the Saturday, only to be told on the following Friday I was going to be moving to Bristol with work. Although every cloud has its silver lining, for it was in Bristol that I met Sue, who now over 30 years later remains my beloved wife. And the connection with Amos 6, how does that all come into that? The connection is this man, Harold Macmillan, who was, slightly perhaps surprisingly, he was MP for Stockton-on-Tees, he was MP from 1924 to 29, and then from 1931 all the way through to 1951. And it was Harold Macmillan, Supermac to some, who famously used the phrase, you've never had it so good. He used that expression when making a speech in 1957 when he was Prime Minister. And that expression, you've never had it so good, as John introduced us to last week, is absolutely at the heart of Amos chapter 5, and even more so perhaps at the heart of Amos chapter 6 that we're coming to look at this morning. Although written some 700 years before the time of Christ, almost 3,000 years ago now, think about that, written in very different circumstances, each week, as we've been going through the book of Amos, so these words become more scarily relevant to us as a society, as a church and as individuals today. So we've been reminded time and again through this series, working through the book of Amos, times in the northern kingdom of Israel were good. Remember, Amos was a southerner, he was from Judah, but he was speaking to his fellow brothers in the northern kingdom of Israel that had broken apart from the Israel that was divided under David and under Solomon. They'd gone their own way. The economy was flourishing, the nation was powerful, and for the rich and powerful in society, they had never had it so good. Yet the leaders of the people had fatally forgotten one thing. They'd forgotten this. <laughs> Remember the lion and its roar that James introduced us to at the beginning of this series? In Amos chapter 6, which concludes this section of the book of Amos, we find that stark warning. For the Lord God Almighty declares... I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the Valley of the Arabah. Those place names mean little to us today, if anything. But they would have been deeply, deeply significant to any that listened to Amos at that time. For Lebo Hamath was a town on the very northern border of Israel. 
The valley of the Arabah was way down to the south of the Dead Sea Basin, the ancient Israelite equivalent of John O'Groats to Land's End, symbolizing the extremities of the nation. Although not revealed here, the oppression that would come on the people would be total. It would be total wipeout. A prophecy that would be fulfilled 30 or so years later in 721 BC when the mighty Assyrian Empire tore across and ravaged Israel, carrying off all those who had in recent times never had it so good to a life of servitude elsewhere across their mighty Assyrian Empire that stretched across a vast swathe of the Middle East. Today we would call such actions ethnic cleansing, but in ancient times it was the way that a conquering power ensured there would be no chance of rebellion against their rule. Get rid of all the potential troublemakers, distribute them far and wide to the far corners of the empire so that they can't cause trouble in the land you've conquered. Brutal but effective. If you've closed your Bibles, can I encourage you to open them again to Amos chapter 6 on page 922. And as we do so, let's pray. Let's pray for wisdom. Let's pray for discernment. Let's pray for open hearts as we tackle issues that are as painful and as relevant today as they were 3,000, almost 3,000 years ago. Heavenly Father, we've sung that you are our hope, you are our strong deliverer, you are the defender of the weak, you comfort those in need. Father, as we come to these deeply challenging verses, Father, we pray that we may hear you speaking to us through them. Father, they're deeply deeply troubling and challenging verses that have much to speak to us today. Father, open our ears to hear. Give us the wisdom to discern those things that are truly from you and to reject anything that isn't. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've seen these past weeks at the time Amos wrote these words. The rich and powerful of Israel had never had it so good. Thanks to an expansionist foreign policy, they'd forged successful trading relationships with the surrounding nations. The army was powerful. They were successful on the battlefield. For those at the top of society, life was good. But then as now, success led to pride and pride to complacency. And it's to the complacent leaders of Israel that Amos directs this message. A message coming directly from God. And targeted at what today we'd call the establishment. In verse 1, Amos makes clear who is directing the oracle that follows at. Woe to you, he says. Woe to you who are complacent in Zion. To you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. Great high mountain in there. Good defensive position there. You're going to feel secure on the top of a mountain. On the top of the pile. You notable men of the foremost nation. To whom the people of Israel come. Amos couldn't be clearer who this oracle is aimed at. God speaking to the leaders, the leaders of the nation, church and state, although effectively one much more back then than now. He's talking to the religious establishment, the leaders of commerce, of industry. And he's speaking directly to them through the prophet Amos. 
These are the notable people to whom issues will be brought for adjudication, for decision. These were the people who wielded power and influence in the land. One of my favourite humorous books is this little tome, 1066 and all that, which claims to be a memorable history of England, comprising all the parts you can remember including 103 good things, five bad kings, and two genuine dates, one of which is the eponymous 1066 of the title. The book, first published in 1930, introduces the concept of the top nation, a role fulfilled by England for the most part of the book, but the book ends when America becomes top nation, and thus, as the authors Seller and Yateman put it, history comes to a full stop. Apologies to anyone listening in America. Sadly, any such history of either Israel or the southern kingdom of Judah, humorous or otherwise, would have recorded many more than five bad kings. And at the time Amos was writing, Jeroboam II, who ruled over Israel at the time, was very definitely a very, very bad king. But despite that, Israel was enjoying a period of unprecedented economic prosperity and military success. So Israel could rightly at the time be described as top nation, that foremost nation, as Amos puts it in verse 1. But as we read on, Amos makes clear with piercing and penetrating clarity, that power and prosperity had led to an endemic complacency amongst the leaders of the nation that completely utterly, totally failed to appreciate the growing peril that surrounded the nation on all sides, which would ultimately lead to its destruction. In verse 2, Amos calls on the leaders of Israel to go and look at Calne, and then to go on from there to Great Hamath, and then down to Gath in Philistia. Now, I've got to be honest here, the exact reasons for calling out these cities for particular note is a little unclear to us down the ages. Various hypotheses have been put forward over the years, some of which depend a bit on the date attributed to the book of Amos. We don't know a great deal about Calne. We find it mentioned in Genesis 10, chapter 10, verse 10, as one of the cities that were part of the empire established by Cush, one of the sons of Noah's son Ham though there's some debate about the exact location of the city. Hamath, we know a bit more about it, was a chief royal city of the Hittites, situated between Carchemish and Kadesh, on a gigantic mound by the Orontes River in what's now Syria, but which was by this time, surprise, surprise, subject to the Assyrians. Gath of the Philistines is mentioned many times in the Old Testament, most famously as the home of Goliath. But by the time of Amos writing, it had never fully recovered from being destroyed by Hazael, king of Aram. Aram Damascus is recorded in 2 Kings chapter 12 and verse 17, and eventually it would fall again, guess who to? The Assyrians. You begin to see a bit of a pattern emerging here. I think that most probably... Amos was calling on his listeners to reflect on the fallen splendour of these cities. An almost rhetorical question. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Notice there he brings Judah into the frame here, lest they were given to any sense of moral superiority and think they were above any of the failings of their their northern neighbour. 
Are they Calne, Hamath, or Gath any better off than your two kingdoms, Amos asked? Is their land larger than ours? The answer in both questions is an emphatic no, emphasizing to his listeners the superiority of Israel in the region. But whilst Israel may superficially seem in a much better position than Calne, Hamath, or Gath, Amos goes on to make clear the true state of Israel. Verse 3, Amos tells the leaders of the nation, you put off the evil day and bring near a reign of terror. We shall come to that day of terror shortly. But before we do so, we must turn and consider Amos' excoriating condemnation of the complacency of Israel's leaders. Remembering from verse 1, this oracle is aimed lock, stock and barrel at the notable men of this foremost nation, the leaders, the top brass, the establishment, the ones who set and define the culture of the land. Remembering at that time these things were defined by the leaders of the nation rather than by social media influencers. You lay on your beds inlaid with ivory, Amos writes. You lounge on your couches, you dine on choice lambs and fatted calves, you strum away on your harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. What's wrong with that, we think? After all, business was good. Surely all that Amos describes are just the well-deserved rewards for hard work. Some nice furniture in the house. Very nice compared to the rough wooden bed frames the majority of people would have slept on of time to sit back and take it easy. After all, this prosperity didn't just happen. It took a lot of hard work. The fruits of success were surely to be able to enjoy the fruits of the land, to be able to enjoy some decent food, a bit of music to entertain them while they ate, and perhaps even a bit of musical improvisation. Is this the earliest reference to jazz that we find? And well, some good wine is surely in order to wash down all that fine food, and then we've We've got to keep our skin looking nice, protect it from the effects of the sun, make sure we smell nice when we're gathering together to eat all that fine food and drink all that nice wine and listen to that music, to feast and to be entertained. And at one level, to be fair to those who are enjoying such luxuries, there's nothing wrong with them in principle. We need time to relax. It's good to listen to music. I was listening to some music as I was preparing these notes. It's a blessing to be able to share a nice meal and a glass or two of wine with family and friends. So what Amos describes are not necessarily inherently wrong in themselves. But, and it's a big but, Amos says, you were enjoying all of these things, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Literally the breaking apart of Joseph. So we read those words and might think, okay, so what, but... To truly understand the implication of what Amos is saying here, the analogy that Amos is drawing on and why it would have been so powerful for those who had ears to hear Amos' words, we need to go back again to the book of Genesis, the account of Joseph and his brothers in verses 23 to 25 of Genesis chapter 37. And then again we find it mentioned in verse 21 of Genesis chapter 42. The account is well known. Joseph's brothers determined to be rid of the one who was very clearly, very definitely his father's favourite. He goes out to them 
They're out with the father's flocks. They strip him of his coat. They throw him into a dry cistern to leave him to his fate while they feast. Rather than just leaving Joseph to die and going back and telling their father that he was attacked and eaten by a wild animal, they decide to sell their brother into slavery to a passing band of Ishmaelites. Amos now draws a stark and shocking parallel with what is happening in Israel hundreds of years later with what Joseph's brothers, the same brothers whose names were still born by the tribes of Israel, did to their brother Joseph. So what then was wrong with the acts that Amos lists and condemns? God speaking through Amos saw that as the leaders of the nation, church and state pampered themselves and found idle ways to pass their days by feasting on the choice lambs and fattened calves, they were jeopardizing the future of the health of the flock by literally eating potentially the best of the breeding stock that would secure the future of the flock. The reference to drinking wine by the bowlful is not only indicative of excess, even today I don't think I've anyone ever come across anyone drinking wine by the bowlful. More critically, most probably it's a reference to the bowls being those that were used as part of the temple sacrifices. Thus using the sacred for the common. It would be like using the cups that we will use to share the, the wine of communion this morning at home. For a feast. It's just not something we would do. Worse still, as the leaders pampered and indulged themselves, they ignored the plight of their citizens, the poor, the fatherless, the alien in their midst, and even worse, they ignored the signs of gathering danger at their border, the terror that would come upon them. Whether pride breeds complacency or vice versa is perhaps difficult to determine. But in verses 8 to 13, Amos denounces the pride of Israel. In verse 8, we discover the totality of the Lord's anger at Israel's pride. Might not come across perhaps that obviously, but we read there, the sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, the Lord in capitals is how we write the Hebrew word Yahweh, the divine name, the God of holiness, redemption and wrath. The God of hosts is is God the omnipotent. In swearing by himself, God is committing the totality of his nature as the Holy One, the Redeemer, the Judge, the totality of his status as the world's sovereign Lord and the totality of his power as the one who is omnipotent in condemning Israel's pride. The pride of Jacob, another name for Israel. God is totally, utterly, completely condemning the pride of the leaders of Israel. And what are going to be the consequences of that unrepented pride? Nothing less than total destruction of the city and everything in it. The verses that follow make for grim and salutary reading, for they speak of God's impending judgment. The totality of the destruction that's to come upon Israel is described in the verses that follow. If ten men are left in one house, they too will die. If a relative who's to burn the body comes to carry them out of the house, asks, is anyone anyone who is still hiding there, is anyone with you? And says, no, he'll say, hush, we mustn't mention the name of the Lord. Why? 
This is puzzling, but we have the totality of the judgment and destruction, the avoidance of speaking God's name for fear that they'll attract his attention and be judged as well. Trying to hide from God there. That's the totality of the judgment that's going to come across upon Israel. Verse 11, the Lord Yahweh has given the command, he will smash the great house into pieces, the small house into bits. In other words, judgment will come on all, great and small. doesn't matter how big or how small your house is, judgment is going to come, the most significant to the very least. And then verse 12 seems very puzzling. What does it mean when Amos speaks of horses running, running on rocky crags or um, plowing there with oxen? The Hebrew is a bit uncertain there. Hebrew, one of the problems with translating from the Hebrew is they don't conveniently split the letters up into words. You have to kind of work out where the one word ends and the next word begins in there. And if you just slightly um, change the order in which you separate the letters out, and they don't put vowels in either, just to further confuse matters, you could read that as plough the sea with oxen. My slightly, diff- slightly later translation of the NIV has plough the sea with oxen or any other beast of burden. And that reference to horses running on the rocky crags could be translated as horses scaling cliffs. Both utterly impossible. Horses are no more capable of scaling cliffs than an elephant is. We don't plough on rocky crags. We don't plough the oceans. In a pattern that should now be familiar to us, Amos has a very painful sting in the tail. The message of these two verses is that you haven't been able to achieve what's impossible in the natural world, getting horses to run on rocky crags or scale cliffs or oxen to plough the oceans or to plough the the, the cliffs. But, and here we have that word but again, it keeps coming back. But, Amos says to Israel's leaders, you've done what should be equally impossible morally, for you've turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You haven't been able to change the natural world. Equally, you shouldn't be able to change the moral world, but you've done it. You've turned justice into poison, the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. That condemnation of Israel's leaders is ringing and total. But as Amos prepares to draw this section to its fearful conclusion, while we might think that it's, he's perhaps striking a slightly more conciliatory note in verse 13 when he refers to Israel rejoicing in the conquest of Lodabar and taking Karnaim in her own strength, all this not quite surprise, surprise what it seems. Lodabar was a town in Gilead generally regarded as a bit of a ghetto. It was the home of Jonathan's disabled son Mephibosheth, to whom David went on to show great kindness when he became king. The name means no pastor or no word or nothing. But in Hebrew, the word lo-dibar is very close in sound to lo-dabar, which means nothing. Bit of a play on words there. Karnaim was a city in Bashan to the east of the River Jordan, which could also be translated as nothing, although according to some scholars and the footnote in the NIV, Um, is believed also to mean horn symbolising strength. We conquered strength with our own strength. So we probe a bit more deeply, we find in Amos' words a more subtle condemnation than perhaps we've seen elsewhere in this oracle. They've conquered nothing by all their military strength and power. And then in verse 14, Amos declares the Lord's devastating judgment on his people. For remember, the whole of Amos' writings are aimed at the leaders of the nation of Israel, made up of ten of the twelve tribes descended from Jacob's sons. 
drawing this whole section from chapter 3 and verse 9 through to the end of chapter 6 to a close. And what a condemnation it is. The Lord God Almighty declares, I'll stir up a nation against you, O house of Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Libor Hamath to the valley of Arabah, two places marking the very north and the very south of the nation of Israel. For all their much vaunted military prowess, Israel would be annihilated by the mighty Assyrian army. Assyria would become top nation, and as far as the kingdom of Israel was concerned, history came to a full stop in 721 BC. So what's the relevance of any of this to us this morning, 3,000 almost years later? Amos spoke these words into a very different situation. And as we look around us, at a local level, things are going pretty well, chaps. At St. John's, we're blessed with godly, able and committed leaders. We hear God's word read and expounded each week. Our church is pretty full. We have busy children's work. The building is warm and well-maintained. We support missionaries in their work. have lots of activities going on the week, during the week. Look a bit more widely. We live in a nation that's at peace. We're not facing imminent invasion. And whilst we aren't living in the days of Supermac, struggling with a cost-of-living crisis, are things really that bad? We've got an independent judiciary, our legal system is well established, the rule of law applies throughout the land, and we've even worked out how to farm the sea in part at least. So surely none of this can possibly apply to us. An interesting but irrelevant history lesson. There lies the root of both complacency and pride. And I hasten to add I wasn't being entirely serious. For those of you who aren't familiar with the English idiom, my tongue was firmly in my cheek, so don't necessarily believe all of that. Brothers and sisters, we've seen time again during our exploration of the book of Amos, that message of Amos has everything to do with us today. I'm not suggesting for one minute that the recent earthquake is any specific judgment on the people of Turkey and Syria, but it's a reminder to all the nations, surely, of the judgment that one day we will all face. It's going to be a long while, if ever, that we understand the reasons why so many buildings collapse, leading to such a horrendous loss of life. Now, well over 46,000. I'm sure we can all speculate. The issue of arrest warrants for a large number of developers gives us a clue, although it's too late for those who have perished. But somewhere, complacency has to be at its core. A complacency that it'll be quite okay if we don't really follow the codes, but make a contribution to a special fund instead. As a big quake will never happen in our lifetime, will it? But the buildings, well, they're probably a bit more robust than we think they are. They'll be all right. For the building inspector to turn a blind eye to poor design and construction that doesn't comply with the codes. Does it really matter as long as it's cheap? From the harrowing news reports from photographs like this, it's clear that not every building collapsed. Many were damaged but remained standing, limiting the extent of the damage and the number and severity of casualties within them. Is there complacency at work there? I think there is somewhere. 
Some of you may remember back to the Kobe earthquake of 1995, which was similar strength, around 6.9 on the Richter scale. I was due to be in Kobe just a couple of weeks after it struck, um, a few days after it struck, actually. I actually went there about six weeks afterwards, and I vividly remember how whilst the majority of buildings, or a lot of the buildings in the affluent parts of town were unscathed, or had suffered serious but contained damage as you moved out to the poor areas of city. On either side of the road were very neat mounds of rubble that had once been someone's home with. And this still sticks in my mind. You'd see a teddy bear, or perhaps a microwave, resting incongruously on the top of that pile of debris heaped about four foot high. What was left of someone's home? The death toll in that quake was just over 6,000. The consequences of the earthquake, the extent of damage, two modern supposedly earthquake-resistant buildings highlighted, as you can see, some, um, some significant issues with the design codes then in use in Japan on the other side of the Pacific in places like Los Angeles. But yet again, highlighted that it's the poor who suffer most in such events drawing attention to the barely recognised largely migrant workers in that society with a fragile immigration status who undertook many of the menial tasks for which modern life is so reliant, like emptying the bins and sweeping the streets. Was the damage, destruction and loss of life a consequence of complacency or just bad luck? Moving away from the realm of natural disaster with the benefit of 2020 hindsight, we can now see that ultimately it was complacency that led to the collapse of Lehman Brothers in 2008, which led to the banking crash that blighted the lives of so many and for so long. Has the international community been complacent in failing to spot the potential for escalation of conflicts across the globe and intervening to prevent them? Have the nations of the world become proud in their capabilities? We see something of that in the Russian leadership who clearly thought that Ukraine would be theirs in very short order based on their presumptions regarding their own military might and prowess, but the capability of their armed forces have been found to be very much less than their leaders assumed. Have we become complacent about the risk of a global pandemic? After all, the last one was Spanish flu in 1919 following the end of the First World War. Has that complacency led to a failure to prepare adequately for a possible pandemic and thus slow down our response? Could the consequences have been less if we'd been less complacent? Have we been complacent for too long about the impact of carbon dioxide emissions on our climate? Have we become so proud of our achievements that we're blinded to see what's happening around us just as the people of ancient Israel were? As a, nation, have we be, as a nation, have we become complacent about the needs of those who are struggling to make ends meet, who are daily having to decide between heating or eating, while the affluent continue to enjoy fine food, to live in luxury? Is justice something that's become reserved for the rich? Are we becoming, or have we become complacent to the extent that we're ignoring the pleas of justice, from the oppressed and the marginalised. Remember those words that we sung in that song just before I began to speak. You're the defender of the weak. You comfort those in need.
But enough of the action of the leaders of the nations, the leadership and governance of our church uh, at a national level become complacent, proud, arrogant to the warnings found time and again in God's word for those who ignore that word. And whilst we rightly take a stand on matters we regard as critically important, of great significance, is there a danger that we've become proud and complacent, failing to see other issues as a result? As a church, as God's people here in Hartford and Greenbank, are we ignoring the needs of those in greatest need? Remember, we owe a debt of love and care to our fellow believers and beyond. It is right that we do care for ourselves, to love us as ourselves. But the welfare of the fellowship must always take precedence over pampering ourselves. Those who exercise positions of leadership should never be content with things as they are. For to do so is to sow the seeds of complacency. That's hard to do. That's why we should continue to pray for our leaders, both secular and in our church. Though God's words spoken through Amos were spoken directly to the leaders of the nation of Israel, I hope that as we consider these verses, we'll begin to draw some parallels, however painful, with the world in which we live. What, though, should be our response? Our response must begin with repentance. We'll come to a time of confession shortly as part of our preparation to share in the bread and wine of communion. As we prepare to make our confession offered corporately, may we ask God's Holy Spirit to search our hearts, to show us where we've become proud or complacent as individuals or as a church, to show us those occasions we failed to obey God's word, when we failed to love the Lord our God with all our heart and mind and soul, or to have loved our neighbour as ourselves. For the times we've become proud or complacent, or both. True revival will only come when God's people turn and seek him, writing to the people of Judah. When in exile in Babylon, Jeremiah wrote these words, recorded in chapter 29 of his prophecy. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you'll call on me and come and pray to me and I'll listen to you. You'll seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. May our prayer be that all God's people across this land will call upon the Lord, come before the Lord our God in prayer, knowing that we will be heard by him. May our prayer be that revival would once again sweep across this land, that God's kingdom would come and come soon. And we need to pray for our leaders, leaders of the nation, our church nationally, our own leaders locally here in church, and to pray for ourselves. Above all, though, we have the great joy of knowing peace with God through the death and resurrection of God's own Son, our Saviour Jesus Christ. It's particularly appropriate that we should hear of God's dreadful judgment on the people of Israel on a day when we share together in communion, that reminder of the price that was paid by God to set free all who believe in Christ's saving work on the cross. As we reflect on the dreadful fate that befell the people of Israel, as we pray for revival in this land, may we be renewed in our determination to share the good news about Jesus with those who have yet to hear. And as we reflect on Amos' prophecy spoken all those centuries ago, yet so incredibly and powerfully relevant today, may we never 
forget.